1: I guess I'll just say that the narrator is, um, is introduced a little bit earlier. His name's Tom. He's an American that's wound up in France during World War One, and uh, this section, which is kind of real close to the beginning, picks up um, in the years just after the war when he's um, working and living uh, around the city, Verdun. For Verdun, for 1921. Oh, and it mentioned, oh, see, now there's all this stuff I'm realizing I did need to set up, but it's okay. i okay. This this person's this name is not that important, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit as we get into it. Verdun, 1921. On the morning Sarah Hagen was to arrive, I awoke with the feeling of something crawling over me in the dark, a scrape of scale, a scratch of claw. I found Father Perrin in the courtyard, looking as though he hadn't slept either. He waited for me to wash and finish my bread and coffee, smoking cigarettes as if they offended him. He started the car and left for the hills north of the city. It had taken years, but you could almost culvert down the city again. In late 1919, the famous Candied Almond Factory reopened and people began to creep back into the streets. A cafe opened, then a bakery, then a school. Well, that's French life for you, Father Perrin said. By 1921, the roads were clear, the bridges over the river rebuilt, the cathedral stitched with scaffolding. In the evenings, the sun reflected red in the new windows. In the hours just after dawn, there was a chalky light as if all the old cordite still hung in the air. I'd been to A. de la or done for two years by then. My title sounded sophisticated, but my duties weren't, especially. I helped the priests of the diocese with whatever they needed and was offered board and a small salary in exchange. Nonetheless, Given Verdun's particular circumstances, it was an important job for which I was hardly qualified. Eventually, I learned to write better in French than I did in English. I often thought in French, I likely would have dreamt in French, but in my dreams, no one ever spoke. On that day, we were headed to the Thymont Ridge, to the village of Fleury. But there was no Fleury anymore, just as there was no Ornay, or Dumont, or Vu or Cumière. All villages leveled during the battle. The government had declared them officially destroyed, though it seems that destruction is usually a matter of admission rather than fact, it probably was too dangerous to rebuild. Between February and December of 1916, a thousand explosive shells had fallen on every square meter of ground, ground that had been farmland and forest, then battlefield, then something new known only as Zone Rouge. We crossed the snaking mews on a new bridge, the water below sleepy and dark, a few ripples, a few branches nodding just under the surface. The The road wove up through hills, the mud remained in some places, but grass had returned in others, a bright, almost hallucinatory green. The earth has never seen anything like this, Father Perrin had said. We've confused it. I couldn't disagree. Much would be said about the battle's brutality, its exhausting length and strategic peculiarity. But the time it was waged, it often wasn't referred to as a battle at all. Will the Verdun Affair ever end, the newspapers asked, using the preferred euphemism for catastrophe and scandal? Will the French ever recover from the Verdun Affair, even if they do save the city? Five years later, this still seemed an open question. I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit and read one of their brief parts good at this um, oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> I think you can read for longer if you want to but. No, no no I feel very encouraged though But yeah
2: but I uh, um. you, are, you know, uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I for- forgot what a um, talented shill you are <laughs> okay more more World War I Battlefield stuff. literary now. yeah yeah Almost a million men had died or disappeared on the hills and fields northeast of Verdun, and their parents, siblings, and wives came in a steady line that might have stretched across the entire front. Ladies chauffeured by car from Paris, and illiterate shepherds from Languedoc, and marsh people from Finisterre, who hardly spoke French at all. The father Perrin that appeared in the foyer of the Episcopal Palace to greet them was quite different from the man I knew. His expression a mixture of pity and nothing, a void into which they could pour everything they had to say. And though he said very little, though he let them make introductions and describe their journey, there was something in his manner, in the thin face that looked suddenly honest, the thin smile that looked suddenly kind, that suggested he was glad they had come. And that mere fact, that mere illusion, if that's what it was, meant the world to the family standing before him, many of whom had traveled for days in cramped train cars, or fuming motor cars, or sometimes in carts drawn by horses, or sometimes even by foot. Many of them had spent what little money they had to get here. For many of them, this was only one notch, perhaps the final notch in an absurdly long and lonely journey. They had already written letters to the lost man's lieutenant, to generals, to politicians, to Foch, Poincaré, and Clemenceau. They had waited for replies from their priest, their magistrate, their mayor, all the while knowing that a letter about their son or husband was just one of tens, hundreds, thousands awaiting its recipient, a letter to be responded to mechanically and in due time. Father Prynne would usher them through the sliding double doors into the office, he would offer to hang their coats on the square rack with a rectangular mirror, and he would offer them water from a glass pitcher I kept refilled, which rested on a wooden tray, which rested on a second empire side table. Yes, the dust still lingered, no matter how many times I swept out the room or beat the rugs, but if you could ignore it, you might not blame a father from Boyu or a wife from Cassie for feeling they had been transported back into a time when the death of one man made some impression that as they took their seats in the red cushioned chairs with their sloped and polished armrests as they began to tell Father Perrin their story, they were no longer in a world of empty church towers, the bells melted for ammunition. When they looked upon Father Perrin and heard him say, I'm glad you've come, I'll do anything I can to help you, they believed him. For some of these grieving families, Father Perrin had to say little else. For some, the sight of the churned earth, the rusted wire, the crumbling forts and twisted bunkers was enough. For some, the question that had coiled around them for months or years, how could this have happened to my son, my husband, my brother, began to make horrific sense. But many others didn't want to understand. They wanted to be understood and they would lean across the Second Empire desk and clutch Father Perrin's hands. They would weep and talk for hours sometimes about the man they'd lost, as if all that talk might help us identify him, as if it might bring him back to life. Bring back to life the man from Poitou who'd walked to Paris as a boy, to apprentice as a cabinet maker, who'd smuggled a young girl in a cabinet he carted back to his village. That young girl, now a woman, came to us in the spring of 1920 to describe every rut in the long road, every bump, the look in his eye when the door finally swung open. They wanted to bring back to life the boy from Anjou who killed a wolf with a bow and arrow and dragged him home across miles of fields. The boy's mother described his expression as he struggled to maintain the stoicism of his older brothers. She described her delight at seeing pride for the first time on her youngest son's face, even though she could also see it wasn't a wolfy shot, but a sheepdog. They wanted to bring back to the boy from Lure, who copied passages of out by hand in his letters to his father to prove that he wasn't forgetting. The boy from Arl, who lost his right eye when he was 11, who'd saved money for a glass one to fool the draft board in 1915. They wanted to bring back the boy who picked apples in Normandy. His father brought a bottle of the family Calvados and insisted that Father Perrin and I drink until we could hardly stand. He made this, the father kept saying. He made this. I'll stop there. (laughs) I hope that was under five minutes.
2: That was perfect. I, and, and before, so, uh, what I would like for you to do, or prepare, is to summarize your novel for us, which is like the worst thing ever to be asked to do, but um, but necessary. But I just want to say, so you think about that. Um, that, that the structure of this book, which is like, you know, the narration but also the the amazing, seamless way in which you give the reader all of that information. It's so amazing, and I learned so much reading it, and and at the same time, and I think, you know, that wonderful introduction you gave really sort of, you know, got at this point where you can lose yourself in the world and the characters, but as a writer, I was also thinking, oh my God, this is brilliant, the structure, and especially the lists of because it is really like stories within stories, Um, and so that was one of my favorite sections. I'm glad you read it. (laughs) And now you have to tell us what your book is about.
1: Okay, well, so. uh, (laughs) It's hard. You know, my one sentence summary is that it's a love story that takes place in the aftermath of World War I. Um, The slightly longer answer you (laughs) I never that. <laughs> How did I come up with something as you know great as that? Um, the longer answer to that is that, uh, that it's narrated by this guy named Tom, and Tom uh, has come to France um, during World War One as a as a teenager um, because his father is a um, works for this group called the American Field Service as as a surgeon, and his father dies while he's there, and Tom ends up. Uh, having this kind of peculiar life during the war where he's the sort of ward of the diocese of verdun and after the war he stays on to help them uh, as it kind of says in that passage i read as sort served their assistant and they're doing two things uh, that he that he at the beginning of the book is is working on the first is they are building this thing called the dumont ossuary and an ossuary is a memorial um uh usually made of or made to house bones and the Battle of Verdun was this, um, as you probably know, this uh, infamous World War I battle is a huge deal to the French, right? Like it's um, like D-Day and 9-11 and Pearl Harbor kind of like all wrapped into one. Um, and after the war, there were thousands of, of unidentified bones, which they needed to do something with. And so they collected them over years and, and put them in this memorial they built. So that's, that's one of his jobs. Um, and also, as the passage that I just read suggested, it, it, had, it had become, and it still is to a certain extent, but especially in the years after World War One, it was this real place of pilgrimage. People were coming from all over France to um, uh, either get closure of, about uh, a loved one that had been lost, or in a lot of cases, kind of to desperately find out some information about someone that was declared missing instead of dead. Um, and uh, so the, the kind of the plot of the book hinges around this person named Sarah Hagen who comes who's a, an American like Tom and um, even though it wouldn't normally be Tom's job to uh, talk to somebody like her, he's kind of like the low man on the totem pole and he doesn't really know how to do it very well uh, because she's a fellow American that this priest he works for asks him to talk to her and he doesn't do a very good job because he finds himself sort of attracted to her and lies to her telling her that he actually knew her husband, uh, who was missing. And that's kind of the sort of foundational event of the uh, of the book and it, it kind of uh, um, develops from there, I guess. Yeah, that's
2: great. I still can't even do that for like my first book. Um, I and so let's talk about Tom, who's really a wonderful narrator and and it's, it's, it's a first-person, as you can tell, it's a first-person narrated book, but, you know, Nick has this really exceptional ability, it's rare, to then tell the stories of other characters, or even characters like just, you know, the dead, the mysterious, like we don't, with such imagination on the part of Tom. And um, it reminded me of one of my other favorite authors, Alice McDermott. She does it, and it's like, I call it this omniscient first person, because really, he's using his imagination. He has so much compassion that he is able to imagine these the lives of these soldiers who are maybe not even real people based on this, you know, or even really at that location Mm -hmm. based on the stories that were told to him. So my question is, did you always know that he was going to be the novel's guide and that it would be told in that way through first because there are like certain challenges with having a first-person narrator who doesn't and he's also sort of an outsider an American an expatriate he's young you know like Nick said the, the priests are sort of used to telling people you know sort of comforting people and like, kind of taking confessions and hearing stories, but for him, I imagine it's very different. You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's it's actually more interesting to write and read about people that are bad at their jobs than it is about people that are good at their jobs, <laughs> you know, because Confl- conflict ensues, right? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, I uh, I knew. F- I mean, I just kind of had when I started working on this. Um, I, I, number one, I even though it's a story about Europe and particularly about France uh, I kind of knew that I needed uh, an American to be central to it and it would be kind of uh, it just would be easier and a little more truthful um, if it was told from the vantage point of an American uh, simply because that's my vantage point so I was going um, you know I did set out to to what seemed and in fact was pretty challenging which was writing about something that took place a hundred years ago so um i thought like well at least i'll like try to keep like part of the point of view kind of in my discernible realm and, and kind of write from from an american's point of view and and also i frankly figured that like the audience for this book is, is going to be american as well uh, primarily so um that would just be easier for for American readers to kind of have this anchor in this foreign space, right, like someone that kind of perceives things kind of in the way that we're used to or... or, And there's the juxtaposition of the way in which
2: the, the, you know, the French who are coming and telling these stories and like, you know, it's a different story for them than it is for him. I mean, in many ways, but it is, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it is. I mean, and that, and that like, one of the things that, like, suddenly I, I realized that was kind of a problem, especially once I began to learn about Verdun and just how uh, sort of important from a sort of nationalistic point of view it is to the French. It was kind of like, well, where are they going to let this American be wandering around doing this, like, you know, sensitive work? Um, and as it turns out there was actually there actually is a good answer to that question this dumont ossuary was built uh with a little bit of government money but mostly through private donations mm-hmm. and most of the donations were from americans uh because they at that time were the ones that had the stable currency right. and had the money uh so it actually in a certain way kind of made sense they would have like a like a plant there to sort of uh like convince um you know these kind of you know I don't know the asters or whoever you know to, to that, that, that this was something that conf- that concerned everybody you know not just the french so that's that's kind of how i ended up sort of justifying him actually being there yeah.
2: but he and so when you first started working on the book he he was there mm-hmm.
1: okay
2: yeah. um and what about so there's these sections that alternates um which i think you read did you read from both sections no you just read from the past section so it alternates there's um there's sections where tom is in the 1950s living in hollywood or mm. somewhere near hollywood actually is, is he living in santa monica
1: he lives in That's Santa Monica. Right yeah, yeah.
2: and i was like oh my god this book was written for me which Did well, yes. actually you know i have to say that the experience i had reading this book and it's when you know you're reading a really great book is when it does kind of feel like you're so engaged and invested that it did kind of feel like it was written for me, even though I have no connection to World War One. well actually sort of, but you know, back far, but um, I don't know, I feel like also the post-war chaos of, you know, um, was really accurately depicted so now I want to talk about research because I feel like Really, it's just extraordinary, this seamless way that so much information is given to the reader, and yet, you know, I never even questioned why he was there, you know, so you did your job really well. You know, I wasn't like, wow, it's so strange that he's hanging out with all the priests in the fields of bones. <laughs> um, I just accepted it, and it made sense to me, but... Um, you know, so how much research did you do before you started writing the book? Like, what is your process in terms? Because your first book, um, which it was good that it was published first, because that was the hardest book to hashtag. Mm. The, the, the yeah, that, that, was, that was not the in- Instagram. The title was so frankly. long. <laughs> yeah. and I... yeah.
1: Yeah. This one used to have a much longer title, too. Really? They were like, cut that down. You got to get, you know.
2: And I remember every time it, yeah. I tweeted about Nick's first book, I was like, <laughs> I was like this I, this is not even hashtagable <laughs> but now it would be like tragic, you, you know I can understand your, yeah. publici- your yeah. publicist put her foot down mm-hmm. um, but um, research, so what is your because pro- that book also you had to do a lot of research um, it was about the fishing community you know like really intense uh, fisherman stuff so um and I actually was like, are you a fisherman, and you're like, no.
1: yeah, yeah, then yeah. You, we met in person, and, uh, <laughs> clearly you are not. Uh,
2: then I yeah, came so. and looked at your bookshelves, and I was like, maybe, huh. maybe like a Hemingway-esque, yeah. like, not not chill fishing, chill. Like
1: with, you know. Re- I mean recreational, yeah. And, yeah, like fly a fishing. But, I mean, yeah.
2: but to research, what is your process? Like, do you do a lot of research first? or do you start writing?
1: Yeah, well, so, yeah, so with this book, I mean, I I guess I should say that, you know, why, the way that I started writing this was I just heard a story on the radio one day. Mm. Um, This was a really long time ago now, probably back in 2009 or 2010, um, back when life was simpler and there was a little more hope. Uh, It really was (laughs) um, And uh, it was a story about this, uh, about an anniversary um, ceremony uh, commemorating the Battle of Verdun and and this is where I heard this this one kind of detail about that that this Dumont ossuary place existed um, and and that it was um, All these bones, as I already said, all these bones were there and they were just picked up over many years by just a few people. And I just remember, you know, I was like, that is crazy. Like, what if that was your day that, like, you get up and, you know, you go and walk around this field and you're just, like, picking up bones like this. Like, goes on for years at a time. Like, what does that do to you psychologically? And I thought that it was a really interesting window into the time uh, because, uh, which is uh, just a really interesting, I mean, they say like pity people that live in interesting times or whatever the phrase is, right? that was a really interesting time to be alive, especially in Europe, because the world had just kind of ended, you know? Uh, I mean, the power structures that had been in place for hundreds of years had been toppled. Uh, There had been this cataclysmic conflict that where tens of millions of people died that would have uh, had, was unimaginable and, and would have been, you know, literally impossible on that scale even twenty five years earlier. Um, so there was, you know, I think at that time there's this real sense of just kind of like terrible possibilities that people are sort of like, this could have happened if we could have just survived this. Like, what else is possible, you know? Um, and so you see that in you know, this kind of interest in, in a, a lot of really irrational stuff, like in art and politics. And, spiritualism and all this kind of stuff. Deep is a big
0: yeah,
1: right, big right. in the book as well. Um, and, and so I thought this one image was uh, like a way to get into that. And I'm not that big into symbolism usually when I think about, you know, what I want to work on, but just the symbolism of someone whose job is to put all these pieces, you know, back that literally don't fit together anymore, right? Um, so when I started writing this, that's all I had. I mean, I didn't really know much about World War I, at the, you know, I was like, I mean, I knew what it was. Sort um, of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, so I had a lot, to, and I decided, so, so not only did I not know much about what I was writing about, I didn't. I didn't have any story either. It wasn't like that. You from had a sense
2: of place. I
1: had this a sense of place and, and character. And well, I mean, but not even the character like yet. You know, I mean, I really had to. Yeah. I had to like figure all that stuff out, which meant doing a lot of research. You know, I mean, it meant yeah. reading mm-hmm. uh, a lot of books, which I, I did over many years. Um, and one of the first things I did after uh, I kind of committed to doing this project was I actually went to uh, Verdun, and. That was pretty weird. Um, it's weird how much of it is still visible. You know, like when you go, the ground lo- looks like this still. You know, like it's all the old sh- uh, shell holes and whatever. Just the, the, It looks like waves. And, um, and even now, annually, someone often dies who goes there because you could go there as a tourist and like, pick up a unexploded grenade or uh, a shell uh, fragment or something and it explodes in their hand um, I mean this I mean this actually I mean I mean, routinely is probably too strong a word but uh, it happens all the time you know um, so uh, so that uh, I, I think just you um, Seeing all of that, and then and then you know in the little passage I read, like they uh, they have all these little villages that were wiped away um, during the battle. That um, they were declared officially destroyed, and so you can go there now. And um, because it was too dangerous to rebuild them, um, because the ground is 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 just you know like you couldn't run a plow in the ground anymore. You know these are old farming communities, but you know if you put a plow in the ground, it would kill whoever was. piloting the plow Um, so they just had to leave them you know they have them roped off and you can see where the old there's a little plaque that says you know here's where the butcher was and here's where like the town hall was and stuff but they're just roped off Um, so it's a very eerie place that that they have very intentionally um kind of done their best to leave it as as it was sort of uh in part because they kind of had to because it's really dangerous
2: wow so when you went there you knew that you had you had to write this book? Like, was there a moment where you were like,
1: yes? Well, I mean, I already bought a plane ticket to Europe. I was I just felt like I, had, I, was kind of, I was kind of committed at that point. Um,
2: That's a good way to motivate Yeah. <laughs> huh, i got to figure out where I'm in, what area I'm going to write about next that I want to visit. Yeah. Um, so the, the way that you write about the destruction in this book is so... You know, just it's through such specific details, which obviously, you know, a lot of it must, you know, is true to life, and and I'm excited to read all the books and the acknowledgments that you said helped you do the research to write this book. Um, So this is kind of a heavy question, but um, do you think humanity? It's just part of our nature to destroy.
1: Whoa! <laughs> you know,
2: <clears throat> or we could just get that question.
1: No, I mean, do you
2: feel more optimistic about humanity after writing this book,
1: or less? I, I mean, I it, optimism is not really in my nature generally. Yes. I have to say, I don't uh, me either. Yeah, yeah. Even though um, it was a
2: very sweet sort of, there were moments in the book where
1: the love and the compassion was really hopeful. Yeah. Well, I mean, those things like, you know, they, they I all exist at the same day. Yeah, <laughs> can, can I crack a smile once reading this? Is that possible, please? Um, no, I mean, I, I, it, it is really dark subject matter, you know, and I knew, I mean, the, the thing that attracted me about it too, initially was that it was really dark. Um, and I didn't really think, I mean, number one, that I, I could handle working on something that was, you know, um, that didn't, I mean, the number one, is it, would, it wouldn't. It would be false, you know. I mean, I think they you know, that's not really the one's experience of life, even when things are really awful. And you know, I mean, I've certainly never been in a situation like what these characters have been in. Um but, uh, but even then, I think you know they're, uh, and maybe even especially that you know the the compulsion to to love and care is. Um, uh, is even more important. Um, so, so you know, there's this whole love story component of it that that felt very necessary. Just as far as keep, keeping my own sanity, <coughs> I didn't think there were actually that many readers out there that would want to just go through pages of. Just someone walking around thinking about grief and death um, and as they like scooped you know rotting bones into a bag I mean, I just you know, um, maybe it's like Cormac McCarthy' were writing yeah. that book and you know, like that you could pull that off but um, but but you know more than that though that's just I mean that that's just not the full measure of life right so so um, and so I, I kind of went looking for ways to, to bring in sort of that sort of luck, you know just the the other side of the coin I guess as it was yeah. Yeah.
2: and so um have you been getting do you feel so you started this book years before i mean i i don't know about everybody else thought donald trump would be i mean you know i feel like when we were sitting in your living room and you were like yeah i'm gonna start working on this book about world war one i wasn't like donald trump is going to be president soon um so do you feel like i mean i'm sure you were maybe doing revisions after like final revisions after he had been elected but also the way in which you know our publishers sort of position our books or market them or talk about them you know based on what's going on in current affairs I, you know for me like my novel The Gypsy Law Summer got extra attention because it's set on a fictional island that's a lot like long island where there was a military aircraft factory and it's very conservative so you know i've seen reviews by readers that are like this is just like real life right now even though i wrote it you know years before um so did that affect the way that you revised the book or thought about it or the way in which you've had readers i mean i know it just you know hasn't been out that long but um like sort of the reactions that maybe you expect from readers. So I don't know if we really expect reactions. We're like, just like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah, oh yeah. I mean I, I the I like I'm guessing most of the other people in this room right now am not particularly pleased with a lot of what's happened in the last couple of years politically. Um but it it has been interesting to see just how much uh, of the sort of national political conversation has um, parallels a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about for and writing about for the last several years. Um, so, so that's true in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, and, and I certainly would not be the first person to draw comparisons between the 20s and the 30s in Europe and the, our you know, current political moment in America. But one of the things that this book is really about is, at this time, this kind of this belief in um, the irrational, and in particular, in things you want to be true but you know are not, right? Um, and And so one of the one of the books, kind of to go back a little bit to your earlier question, when I started when I started writing this, I really didn't know where it was going to go. And, and I really just learned what the plot was going to be as I researched. and kind of randomly one day I found this book in The Strand in New York that was a pretty slim book written by, uh, written in French and, you know, translated into English. I don't know how many copies were ever sold in America, probably not very many, but it was about this French soldier whose name was Anthelme Margin, and he was uh, a POW in Germany and was repatriated after World War One. and he showed up in a French, uh, or I guess with a, a train station in Paris without any papers, and uh, unable to tell anyone who he was, and either he... Didn't had lost his memory, or just didn't want to communicate, or some combination uh, of the two things. And so he ended up in an asylum. And in order to, in an effort to try to figure out who this guy was, the doctors published his picture in the paper, and they got thousands of responses of people saying, "That's my son," or "That's my husband." And it's it was it's you know, and the crazy. I mean, so obvious and. You know, nine, Obviously, there could only be one person who you know correctly identifies him. So, just uh, uh, you know, necessarily, ninety-nine point nine percent of these were, were wrong. But not only were they wrong, like there's no way they could have been right. And and they even and, you know in this book print some of the the letters that they sent. You know, and, and like you know the person they lost was six inches taller than this guy or had different colored eyes, or different, you know, I mean, there was just no way it could have been him. And yet they would write these heartfelt letters saying, it's him, I know it's him, Uh, and I've seen him, you know, he came and told me in a dream, it's him, and things like that. Um, And, you know, so that really uh, was one of those things that really crystallized for me like just kind of what some of the spirit at the time was. Um, and uh, as far as I mean, just this sort of intense grief and longing that people were feeling but also this sense that just wanting something to be true could make it true you know yeah, that's and right. and there's a lot of that right now right I mean <laughs> this this whole notion of the you know the narrative that you want to be the right one or that you see in your social media feed or whatever it is you know it, as being the, the actual thing um, that, that one should believe in you know is one real parallel um, And and the second half that we haven't really talked about this much yet, but the second half of the book is actually about the rise of fascism in Italy. And uh, again, that was kind of accidental um, when I started because I uh, uh, wanted to set part of it in uh, someplace other than France because uh, I just wanted to sort of offer a slightly more panoramic view of the time and uh, oh, I just, you know, I really like Italy, so I just thought would, you yeah. know, yeah, I mean, well, you mostly.
2: visit there also? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I spent a month in Bologna, where it takes, where that parking is, it's really good food, yeah, and, I, and good wine, it was, um, I didn't really get much work done frankly when I was there, <laughs> but it was, it was very useful, um, hey. Do you need siestas? took a lot of those, it, it was like, a, a, you know, usually, you know, you, siesta for two hours and, like, are productive for the other part. I, I kind of reversed that, I think, so. Um, but, the, um, so point being, though, that uh, I, I decided to set the second half of this, which actually has to do with this kind of amnesiac character that is based on the guy I was just describing, in Bologna. And I really had no idea. I started researching that once I made that choice. And I started realizing that Bologna was, uh, at that exact time, was this real flashpoint for, um, uh, Italian, the rise right of Italian fascism, and and and, and what all kind of verged on almost civil war at, at certain points between Mussolini's black shirts, uh, who who are kind of his militiamen, uh, and uh, communists, socialists, social democrats, just about everyone else, and there was all these kind of violent Struggles, um, and, and at first, uh, and particularly writing uh, Emilia Romana, which is the region that Bologna is in, and, and in the city itself, and at first I thought, oh, that's you know that's interesting, but but then I kind of thought, oh well, that's that's kind of I need to write about that actually because that's the sort of omega point of this whole idea that drew me to the material in the first place, which is this kind of embrace of or this kind of irrational. And Italian fascism is totally irrational. Yeah. They didn't have a platform. You know, the platform. I mean, and he was very open about that. You would say, our platform is power. And people were like, okay, that sounds, that sounds like a great, let's go with that, you know? Um, so um, so so a lot of parallels there as well, right? I mean, and I think that that, that way of thinking, of kind of, you know, of, of sort of leaving behind what you know is true versus what you want to be true, you know, uh, has a lot to do with where Italian fascism sort of came from, and then ultimately, um, I mean, we all know where it led after that, right?
2: And I feel like it's also, you know, I mean, back to the destruction question. That was maybe not a good question, but because obviously the answer is yes, <laughs> humanity is addicted to destruction. But um, I feel like there is, you know, this, you know, there is so much faith in the book. Whether it's, you know, there's a, there's those that amazing scene with the, um, I can't remember what she's called, the medium. The medium, yeah. You know. Um, I think just that desperation to believe in something, you know, it works so perfectly with this, you know, extremely de- post destructive period. Um, and and reading all this stuff, I'm, you know, I'm working on a book about post World War II Italy and southern Italy, and I was like, oh, this is so good for me right now. Thank you, Nick. Um, Julia. I know, right? But um, it was really great. So, one more question, a really quick question, and then I'm sure you guys look really smart and fun that you have questions. Um, what was the original title? That's not my question, but I need to know now.
1: Oh, uh, <clears throat> it was originally, for a long time, it was called The End of a Perfect Year.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. No.
1: What? <laughs> no, that's, uh, I, 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 I,
2: Actually, my first novel, yeah. Cutting Teeth, I had an end of the. It was so. It's the end of the world as we know it, which and I can't believe my agent let me send the book out with that title, and that someone actually bought it, but, um, yeah, I know, God, hashtags suck. Yeah, suck. suck. Um, so this is your second published novel, which is huge, congratulations, it's so exciting.
1: Thank you. I mean, really. I am also excited. You
2: gotta, like, you know, remind yourself how awesome that is. Mm So, how was the experience writing this book different from the first one? Was it easier? Mm -hmm. Actually, maybe not. That this should never be a word that we use when we talk about novel writing. Yes, you know,
1: it. It was. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, what the first novel I wrote. um, In a lot of ways, it, it, it. there's a lot of things that are different about this, because that one was more contemporary. takes place in the peninsula and this kind of and fishing copies community. And for sale here. There are. Should you be interested. Um, but, uh, and, and so I think like they kind of look different. In the, you know, and like, They're obviously about very different stuff, but they're not, in my view, that different right. as far as my approach, because in both cases, it was about finding something I didn't know anything about in an experience that kind of scared me a little bit. And trying to research and imagine my way into it, and so this, and I, I didn't know when I started writing my first book that that was part of my process as a writer, or like a a useful thing for me. And I learned that writing my first novel um, that I, w- I was much more comfortable writing about stuff that I hadn't directly experienced than I was about writing autobiographical kind of stuff. Um, so then I thought, well, let's push it back a hundred years and go to a different continent and it's going to work even better, you know, um, which, which, you know, it's so easy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, I mean, it there was a lot, there's, you know, the, that was, it was really, I mean, I like history, obviously, so it was really fun and what, and, and just the, the scope of the research was really fun. like. I was living in New York for uh, the first couple of years. I was working on this. And I used to go to that library, um, the famous one on Forty Second Street, with the lions out front. And you know, the, the this may have changed now because um, I know they were have done a lot of renovation to that. But at least you know, five or six years ago, you. Uh, Go into the Rose Reading Room, and there's like a, a window that like looks like a window that that like a train station or something. And you give them the call number, and 20 minutes later, this like dumb waiter just like comes up from this big subterranean vault, and there's there's these books there that don't have covers, and in a lot of cases, you know, I found some pretty obscure stuff that you know probably had not been. Check you know or you can't check them out, but it had not been read in, or uh, at least that particular copy had not been read in decades in some cases. Um, and it was and a lot of these were primary sources, you know, so you know memoirs, letters, that kind of thing. Um, and that would that was just like really fun to just kind of be sitting there in that room and kind of like kind of you know, I mean communing, for lack of a better word, with these people that had long since been dead and these in these books that um, had, had not you know not many people had read for a really long time. Um, and uh, the, the just kind of the sort of like uh, archaeology kind of you know feeling of that or something was was really fun and, and I ended up incorporating. I mean, you were kind of saying like stories within stories yeah. is a big part of how this book works and a lot of that just comes from stuff that I kind of discovered that way and it was kind of like oh I someone else needs to know about this you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh so that was really fun the downside with writing more historical stuff i've learned is that the little little details that you've normally like what like okay there's a lamp on the table is it (laughs) oil is it electric like i don't know you know um what kind of shoe does somebody wear uh, at that time and place, like I have, like, I don't, I don't know. You know, if I need to, you know, there's just little things you kind of take for granted to like make the scene feel more lifelike or specific. And there's no
2: one that you can reach out to who's alive at that time. I mean, at least I have my father, who's like the worst storyteller. Uh-huh. But I'm like, so what did it smell like in the cave when you were hiding from the bombs? And he's like, it was good.
1: Like, <laughs> it, it was good. That... Yeah. He's like,
2: it was okay. It was okay. And I'm like, no you know, give me details, but um, I feel like, you know, I just want to say a couple of things about how great the book is before we maybe have some questions from the audience. Um, Obviously, immersing yourself in that research and those memoirs and those, you know, the history really, um, I mean, everything in this book feels so incredibly believable to me. And I feel like readers will be able to escape and lose themselves in the way that it sounds like you did um and also like the mystery element which we haven't talked about you know there really is a momentum to this book as you're trying you know as they're trying to figure out who is this man um you know this this mysterious soldier um and so and yet it's like an extremely meaningful book on both a micro level within the love story and Tom's story of how, really, it's a coming of age story for him. He's kind of finding his purpose, you know, um, which is so, you know, important and so basically everyone here should buy three copies because whoever you give this book to, they will love you for it. Seriously, they're going to be like, oh my god, remember that book? You know, remember the something affair? Because I'm not going to remember a French city name, probably. Um, so, does anyone, but
1: this really. Is, this like, is why I asked you to come this talk is that. To...
2: To... <laughs> I mean, I was at an event the other yeah. night and I was like, wait, you know, I did maybe say that those were two of my favorite books of the summer. But this is two. I know you don't believe me. I mean, it's crazy he thinks he doesn't believe me because, really, um, this is an incredible book. To be and yeah, um, it was very inspiring. Right after I read it, I sat down and wrote, which you know, for writers, that's like was just so inspiring when you experience art, whether it's a book or a movie or something that. Um, so, uh, I can't say that what I wrote was good, but still. Um, was does anyone have any questions? <laughs> I was really
0: triggered by what you said. About, um, the seance and the rise of the um, occult, the interesting occult. So I started like, going through my mind of the empathy for storytelling residing in ghosts with Poe and, um, <coughs> and and campaigns. and then trying to carry that forward with futurism and cognitive dissonance with Perindella. I was trying to do the history all the way through up to this, this hysterical realism mm. um, and how these events, these really historic events affect uh, storytelling. Would you just rip on that a little bit because you seem so interested in history, and I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a historian, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really particularly interested in much beyond contemporary storytelling. I do know what's going on with the and you know, um, writers right now is a, is a real thrust towards an unusual terrain. And you're, you're making me think of all these other areas we've through where um, people were writing stories, up, uh, were innovating form, um, were, were going beyond invention to try to um, bring the emotion of the time through the history. Can you talk a little more on that?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, let's see, what
2: can you talk about the, the the spiritualism in the book, like the seances and the. Mm
0: what's
1: well, dis- relevant well so you know one, I mean one thing that kind of come the, that comes to mind uh, I, I don't know this is speaking directly to the kind of historical epochs that your that your question is talking about but um, but it's relevant in part just because of where we're sitting right now is that the, the frame of the book as Julia mentioned uh, takes place in Hollywood and uh, that's not an accident um, that's the, so much of what I wrote about is this whole idea of telling stories but telling the version of the story that you want to believe in, right? Um, and so, and you know, the all the characters in this book do that in a variety of ways, and, and the narrator is included in that, you know? I mean, the whole thing in a certain way is this, the version of this story that he wants to believe in, right? I mean, just as I mean, that's true for any story anyone tells ever, right? Um, and so, though so much of it, most of it takes place in the 20s, um, the frame of it uh, takes place in, in Hollywood in 1950, and, and he's become a screenwriter. And I made that choice because I kind of started thinking about, you know, like, well, what, especially the kind of golden you know, studio system Hollywood stuff, I mean, that, that's kind of the story, you know, if there is such a thing as this, that's kind of the story that America wants to believe about itself, you know, or at least, like, white Americans. Um, and uh, so it seemed really uh, like that was a kind of natural way in which some of those themes, like we, we kind of, we, we live those themes in, in how we, um, anytime we kind of, I mean, and all of us here probably are lovers of narrative in all its various forms. Um, but one of the things that I was interested in kind of getting at is kind of like uh, thinking about like what, um, what are the selfish motivations behind those forms, you know, like, or, or the rhetorical motivations, I guess, behind those forms. And, you know, we start looking at, um, pictures, um, the pictures of, um, 40s, 30s, 50s Hollywood, like, you know, and with that in mind, like, boy, like, there is this, this version of America that, that there, it's really, you know, like, fighting with all their might to kind of what sell you on. Some of the right?
2: movies that were mentioned, like Robin, right? Wasn't Robin Hood?
1: Well, yeah, so like the, this amnesiac um, who uh, who they uh, appear in, uh, that that they meet in, in Bologna, uh, the, the staff at the hospital have nicknamed him Douglas Fairbanks, right. actually, right? It's all
0: very um, tied together
1: yeah and you know Douglas Fairbanks I it, it obviously this obviously know, great silent film star also at the time in 1921 like probably the single most famous American in the right. world uh, with the exception maybe of Woodrow Wilson who everyone in Europe hated by that point so I didn't figure they would name him back um, but um, so so yeah so that's um, so the, just kind of thinking about uh, it was interesting to think about all the ways in which um, you know just the, the services of storytelling basically um, and the uh,
2: uh, yeah. And it really makes sense that he would become a writer and there's that great anecdote where like Hemingway he comes to see A f- Farewell to Arms mm-hmm. made into a movie and he doesn't really like it that much because they had to change it and make it you know, more appealing right. to an American audience and um, it's really, it's that was. Did you know that the Hollywood stuff was going to be in there from the beginning or when did that come to you?
1: I didn't know. I didn't know that. That was that was probably the single. I mean, that that probably that was the the frame of it was actually the last thing I wrote. Um, You know, so I'd written kind of the whole sort of nineteen twenty story before I wrote the the 1950s one, which is probably about 10% of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it, you know, because I didn't figure out until I had written it that that was kind of the, you know, one of the big themes I was interested in. Of course
2: it made me think of like The Last Tycoon mm -hmm. by Fitzgerald, and there's, there are echoes of Fitzgerald in the book, like, you know, the kind of narrator that he is that sort of, you know, even though he's much more present, I would say, than Nick Carraway, Mm -hmm. you know, he has much more at stake. Um, but there are those great moments of the observational writing where he's seeing and imagining characters that aren't actually physically present. It's really great. Yeah. So I have a
0: process question. Um, I'm not a writer, and I don't want to be a writer, but <laughs> I agree. Well, try it. You should try I, it's easy. Yeah, it's easy it. It's so, easy. but it does seem very daunting. And I hear you say, you know, you found out with your first book that you like writing about things you don't know. So I picture you get this idea based on hearing something and now you do all this research and you go and in my mind you don't know what you don't know but you grab a whole bunch of material and you're reading and you're reading and I assume you're taking some set of notes of things that seem to be important facts so then what's your process to make this thing come together? Because I've already
1: given up. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds really hard.
2: It is.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, I mean, I I think um, even though you're not a writer yourself, I think that that is uh, a very um, uh, sort of like wise question because uh, all the time, you know, when when you talk about, uh, and I I teach in in, you know an MFA program, and so um, we talk all the time about trying to find your voice, you know, that that's like the thing that a young writer has to do. Um, But I actually think that just as important as that is finding your process, like figuring out how you actually work. and so that was part of, you know, finding mine. I found, uh, and a, and a lot of things really changed for me as far as my my own work went. Once I did that, um, so the but I mean, it's it's really unscientific. I have to say, and, and here's the here's the true answer. Like, um, yes, I read a lot of things and write notes in the margin and keep a notebook with some stuff and whatever. But really, it's. What I remember a month later, like thing, like what what I actually makes it in there with with a few exceptions. Like occasionally, I'll be like, oh gosh, I need something to happen here. I'll go like do an old notebook. I'll be like, oh yeah, all right, that would you know. But mostly, mostly it's just I kind of have like a sort of like HEPA filter or something like in my like brain that um, it's just that the stuff that I like remember and keep thinking about. Is the stuff it, that yeah. that you know it's just like kind of my you know uh you that's the the stuff that sticks around is the stuff that stays in. You know basically that idea. It
0: starts good
1: like a bigger
0: ball of yarn and, and the story starts the pieces mm. start kind of clumping
1: together. Yeah, that's it's a real mess in there. And it's, uh, you know, um but but I mean but I do think like uh I, you know not um I don't know exactly what I believe as far as like the, the model of the psyche or something, but I think there is like definitely a you know an unconscious or a subconscious or something, and I think that without that uh, writing would be really impossible.
2: Boring. Um, yeah. Well. To do.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah.
2: You want to uh, surprise yourself sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I mean. That's the interesting part is when, like, you're informed uh, by reading all of the history and. the anecdotes and then something rises to the surface that you may have forgotten about and it becomes like a pivotal You know scene or plot um, Point I think
1: for sure for sure, and I I think that if it you know if all you could do was actually write stuff That was that you had just kind of immediate access like that I would never be able to keep that straight, you know like I um maybe other people who are smarter than me could (laughs) but I, I you know you really it's like that part of your brain that you don't know is working for you doing the work for you is what I find to be the the most useful and usually the best stuff comes from there, too.
2: I think also that your process can change, you know, I mean, I'm I'm older than you are. I don't even know by how much, but enough. And um, now that I, you know, work, run a business, you know, have two children, I do a lot more thinking before I sit down and dedicate to a book. So I'll send myself like one-line emails like a bunch of those a day and then I'll just add them all To whatever document I have and I sometimes I'll different documents for each character because I often do the alternating third person and you know, I must have like Thousands of pages of notes that I never go back and look at because of what you know, because it's the act of writing them down, or emailing them to yourself, or reading them that informs you of the story that you need to tell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. And do you force yourself to sit down for a certain period of time every day? When um, you're ready to write. I mean, it just you know. Uh, I mean, like Julia's is saying, God, I don't. Please say no. Yeah. That <laughs> I <laughs> don't force. Them. I mean, no. I. It, no, I mean, so,
2: there are writers who do that.
1: So I, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times, I, I could... Just doing jobs? And shows. Um, I, 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 you know, life gets in the way, or other responsibilities get in the way a lot of actually you know, being able to do that. Um, but it, it just depends on, if I'm actually in a mode where I have time, you know, I think it's actually really useful to, to say, you know, I have, here's my work quota, or something like that. Because, um, um, at least for me, no matter how good the day previous was, it's just like terrifying to write a sentence the next day, you know, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, I mean? just like, you know, in fear of, Until you slip back of, well, yeah, yeah, but, but also, like, if you didn't have this, like, it would be very easy not to slip back, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Um, so having some, playing some game with yourself where you, you know, have to do something or other, you know, or otherwise you could hit yourself over the, you know, wrist with a ruler or something like that is, um, that's useful. <laughs> I don't actually hit myself, but, but it's, 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 a, it's a, yeah, no, I, it's a scourge that I use um, as an matter of kind of a um, medieval sort
2: of thing. But, um. I mean, I think that the but when, we, when we lived in New York, you know, where I feel like we're surrounded by very young writers, like right out of MFA programs, I don't know how they're making a living and paying New York rent, but I remember having a panel, it was all of Street instructors, which is the school I run in New York and Nick used to teach for us. And um, they were all like, yes, I wake up in the morning, I go to yoga, I write my 1,500 words, and then all of a sudden I was like, God, I should be on this panel, Mm. even though I was moderating it. You know, I was like the failure on the panel. (laughs) But I think that sometimes, like, when you're a writer, because I know you are a writer, (laughs) um you know i think everybody does it differently and sometimes you can get so caught up in beating yourself up for not doing the daily thing that you just don't write at all you know i'm because i work so much um running my business like i'm a binge writer you know so i do like marriott getaways when i was trying to finish this last book you know where i go for like three days like down the block like down the street from my house and just don't leave for like you know, which actually is very physically unhealthy, mm. but you go to a place with your dramatized scenes where you're like, oh my god, I am in this book, you know, but I think it's different for everybody. everybody. Don't do that. Madeline's going to be mad at me now. And you're like, I'm Don't going you. to the Marriott for the weekend.
1: <gasps> she would never let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> <coming>. <laughs> You <laughs> probably would be pretty sure I was having fair, like, <laughs> so an affair if I said I didn't want to marry
2: after a uh, while. You Nick know. Swain is
1: also a yeah. brilliant writer. It's <laughs> sure, sure, true. She's great. How did you two know each other? I used to work for Julia when right. uh, we lived in New York. Uh, she runs. Uh, did you both yeah. have an Iowa thing? Uh, we yeah, both went to Iowa, but not at not not
2: the, the same time. Because I'm older. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, by like. I don't even know.
2: (laughs) Let's not talk about that. But yeah, and Nick was really, he is still a great teacher, but he and his wife taught alternating nights in their apartment in Manhattan at a time when you guys were the only people teaching in Manhattan because everybody who lived in Manhattan kept moving to Brooklyn. And I was like, God, you know. But, um, and then they left was sad.
1: Yeah, it was sad. Yeah. Um, so I, how much, uh, Dylan, how, how are we doing? No, now? we're not done yet. I'm no, just okay. joking. Okay. No what? Okay. Else? Yeah. Uh, anyone else? Uh, yeah. So
0: Nick, I'm interested in finding out more about your revision process, because this novel is really nice and compact with 300 pages, but did you have like say a 500 page novel that you then had to pare down to 300, like because you were talking about how fun the research process was, so mm-hmm. were there any anecdotes, or chapters that were outtakes in the end that are in your laptop somewhere that didn't make it
1: in? Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, that, that's got to be true for just about every book ever, right? Um, but not, you know, nothing, um, I mean, I pro- it wasn't ever five. I mean, i probably cut, <laughs> you know, seven, maybe 50 to 75 pages, maybe. Over the course of a few years of revisions, and then you know you cut some things, and you write a little more, and you know that to fill in gaps that you've created or whatever. So, um, so but yeah, it was it was hard um, because there was so much. I mean, I, I, you know, I, uh, there were so many other kind of little sort of sub stories that I was interested in telling um, that don't necessarily. Uh, speak directly to the plot right um, so th- those are the things I had to be the most judicious with and, and the most kind of brutal with in, in editorial work um, and a lot of that just ends up being you know I, um, pacing I think like there's um, I think in, in, at least I find in editing like there are not occasionally you'll just be like oh I don't need those two pages or something but much more frequently it's like these two pages should be a page and a half or one page you know i mean it's a lot of, a lot of times it's just a question of i used to uh, a teacher I had at iowa you know he always said one good thing to do when you're uh, editing is is try to cut a sentence from every paragraph in, and in fact when you try to do that usually you can um so ethan. that was uh chris offit but uh he probably learned that from ethan or he's very well-minded yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> exactly, and you know, yeah. and you know, there there is a real kind of tyranny of, of pace, you know. I think in in the marketplace, and you know, just for for you know, I mean, people's you know attention spans for like a novel length book, you know, like I mean, I think that there's a real uh, like kind of push to like. You know, keep it moving as much as you can
2: um, it's also a great technique i just want to say that you know that you're able to do like all the lists in the book are such great like to examine them as a writer and learn from them like the lists, like what you read about the people coming and telling the stories about the soldiers who are the missing soldiers like really so i mean actually if you like in my copy like i, I circle i started circling all the lists look lists because and I'm, and you know it's not that I'm do- that to me like becoming a better writer by reading this book because I was like oh look at this like it reminded me how useful that is because it really is a small a slim book for the amount of history and
1: time, you know, the time span also. Yeah, I mean, you're really um, trying to kind of just, yeah, like this, sort of, you know, boil boil down the stock kind of thing, right, yeah. you know I mean? Um, but, but even even up until my last draft of it, there was just like, you know, and sometimes it's just a one sentence where it's just like, oh, that's such a cool detail, it doesn't do any, I love that, but yeah. it doesn't do anything for, it's just kind of weird that it's, I mean, I know, like, it's there because I liked it yeah. and just wanted it to be there. It's not actually, like, doing, this character has, no reason to be thinking about this thing at this moment. Um, I just I want you to know that I like found this. Want to share it? You know, right, right. You know, like, uh, like, like. Here was, here was. I mean, just one example of that. Like this, uh, I've read this great book about rural France uh, that I, that I. Um, uh, taught me a lot about rural France, and um, one of the things that I just thought was so cool was that uh, the, that in some places one of the, like the ways that they define space, like you in France, like your your little village, like your your pays. Is, I don't know exactly how you say it, but p a y s. Um, is, is kind of like the French word for your, your little your little village or your little space, right? And like, how do you know like when that ends? Like, you know, when you're no longer in it, it's when you can't hear the church bell anymore. You know, you'll be out in the field and you can't. You've you've moved out of your home because you can't hear the church bell anymore. It's just a like a beautiful detail, right? Oh, yeah. And I just like had this, uh, but then it was like a,
2: Oh, you should I, not have taken that. I, no. oh, yeah, I Yeah, I
1: did. I mean, it, you know, the one place I could put that in, it, there was just no reason. I'm stealing
2: from my novel. Well, definitely the uh, No, no,
1: I, I already actually have it in my notes. Except Why? it's yeah. Yeah. That was The title <laughs> I <can't remember>. gave. <laughs> <laughs> We're
2: rewriting your book uh, in the moment.
1: Right, right. So, so that, but that was like. I mean, I kept that. I, just, I kept that until the very. I knew that had to go like years ago, but I just kept that until the very like like line edits. I think that I was doing, um, and I was kind of like, okay, now, now that's gone. Yeah. Now I
2: have to dedicate
1: my book to you. I, 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 I seriously, I have already put that in. Actually, the next. Thing. <laughs> I'm not have it.
2: What are you working on now?
1: Uh, I, other than that, it, it's, about a, it's about a church well, you battle. Have
2: one detail. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: I can't right. say anymore. It's about a, a very poignant o- church battle. Usually,
2: belt. the audience asks, "What's next, Nick?" But
0: they like the
1: church battle idea. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, it sort of anthropomorphizes it a little bit, personify it. I, you know, it's uh, not only what's next, but is it
0: going to be? Nine
1: more years. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I I am working on another uh, novel now, which um, I, it's it's similar vein uh, though. Um, I mean, in, in part because uh, a lot of it, I mean, on a more macro scale, a lot of the stuff that I kind of you, know, you just find all these other kind of ideas as you're researching. And kind of go, oh well, that you know, X thing that would make a good that would make a good novel. So. Um, So yeah, I'm actually writing another sort of war-ish thing in Europe, but set a little bit later, um, and um, it has that church bell in it. Italy? Italy? It's it's mostly going to be in Eastern Europe, actually, I think, yeah. Uh, So uh, I don't have a ton to say about it other than that, other than, uh, it better not take nine years. (laughs) Uh, And I am going to do my damnedest. Uh, you like the first yeah, person? So this, yeah, so the, so the whole idea yes. is is this is going to be like first person but even more removed. So like the first person narrator ah, like really almost has nothing to do with the plot actually in this oh, one. Oh, that's going um, yeah, uh, to be, be a challenge for you. It's going to be a barrel <laughs> of monkeys. <Yeah. laughs> um. Um, so I, I thought that there was a uh, somewhat of like a shell shock
0: quality to the narration. That um, was wondering if yeah, that was sort of uh, if Tom's voice came sort of like pretty readily as you were writing, or if you were like, okay, I've really got to like find what is the right voice to um uh, a post World War One story. Like That's it.
1: Uh, yeah, well, so I'm curious, Dylan, what, when you say shell shocks? like, what do what you, what, like? What? Um, like, there's, uh,
0: there's, there's a, a, like, a coolness to it, but there's also, uh, you know, like, to me, it, it's, I guess, a result of, like, uh, sort of feeling subdued, but also grieving at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes
1: sense. It's not like... Mm-hmm. Well, like, days didn't confuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah. So um, I mean, so, so I think part of that, right? Um, uh, I guess it's trying to do two things um, on a craft level. Like, I mean, it's it's retrospective, right? It's very it's very um, obviously or very uh, self consciously retrospective in the sense that you know the, the, the you know Tom is in his fifties when he's telling this story, but he's telling it about a time in his life when he was in his twenties. Um, so there is an inherent detachment to it, just because it's 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 very self-consciously looking back in time, but um, and and he's and it's kind of supposed to take on the voice of a sort of older, more mature kind of you know person, um, someone almost Julia's age. <laughs>
2: And yet, yeah. though, when we're in the drama scene, it feels like you're with the young Tom. Well, which is right.
1: So, but, but, but at the awesome at the point of
2: view technique, um,
1: accomplishment. But, perhaps. but I think you're right. Like he, is, uh, he's not, you know, he's not shell shocked really. But, but certainly, like there is some like trauma and just kind of shaken quality to his life at the time. I mean, again, like his morning is gets up in the, you know, that goes out of the truck and picks up bones all day. Like he watched you know. his father die. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, he saw his father die. Yeah. Um, so not a spoiler, really. No, I. That's, that happens in the first page, essentially. <laughs> um, so, uh, so uh, yeah, and I can't even say, like, you know, here was a moment when I was thinking, you know, it just, like, like it, it, I guess basically to answer your question in the simplest way, like, one things that did come pretty easily was the voice. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. that's probably why I wrote it in the first person to go back to one of your early questions, is because, you know, there's so much that does not come easily when you're working on a book, and you really should not look a gift horse at the mouth when you kind of find something, and, and even just that you know, first line of, you know, I, I woke to something crawling over me in the dark, or whatever, which is one of the first things I wrote, um, that I, I kind of almost, I had something at that point, you know, um, and, uh, and, 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 and that's one good, you know, when you don't question, even in some ways, like I think it. Like it would have made sense to write this in third person, in for in for a lot of other reasons, but um, I, I didn't is, question that. There here.
2: is a little bit. There is an element, though, like a positive element, where sometimes his I wouldn't even use word unreliable, you know, unreliability, because even though there's the older Tom, um, you know, who we assume is telling us the story, I felt like in the moments in Verdun, you know, especially within the love story. right, that it did feel like you were with, and that's like when, that's when you know you're with a skilled writer who can, because first person, I think, is, is harder than, you know, it's more limiting. You only have one pair of eyes, one guide, and the fact that you can sort of show us, you know, like how I talked about that omniscient point of view, that you can give us so much information that's outside anything that he would know using his mind, you're like a real first person master, right? Don't even well, think guess, about that's writing in right. third
1: that's, person. That's, that's my Never. bad. Never. Yeah, yeah. But um,
2: yeah. it's really hard to do. I mean, I actually go into bookstores and ask them. I'm like, hey, guys. And they're like, oh, guys, Julia. She wants to talk about books again. And I'm like, do you have anything new in third person? And they're like, like, if they,
1: <laughs> because, <laughs> they're like no, actually. Um, <laughs> because first
2: person is really hard to pull off, like to do with like real grace and guide the reader and give a lot of information. So that's extra reason why you should buy this book. Seriously.
1: Um, agree with me, Nick. I was just pointing to you, and that was the agreement gesture. Um, was a, listen, listen to her, yeah. Um, I so we have time for one more question, or, I sick of us. Can you We have the great sense of humor. only when he's with me. I, I, I do, I do, I get up a notch. How, How early in the, in conceiving the book did you come up with the love story as a kind of narrative book, and then, the second question, maybe a tough question, maybe a dumb question, but do you find it tough to write those scenes, those love scenes, not the sex scenes, but the love scenes, because they've just been done so many times. And do you have do you have a way to approach those scenes in a way that you can make them your own? Yeah. So uh, the as the, to, to the the easier part of the question, um, uh, pretty you know, pretty early on. I mean, as I said, like I, I really was looking for. I mean, I um, for all the reasons I, I kind of already sort of um, spoke about. Like it, it just felt like a love story. What was just a really appropriate way to. To kind of counterbalance all of the kind of macabre darkness of of the material, um, I mean, just kind of really needed that, and 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 there was a very um, kind of obvious mechanism for that to be a complicated sort of love story. Uh, to the second part of the question, yeah, it's really hard to um, to uh, yeah. Y- you know, I mean for better or for worse, like there's this part of a kind of like, you know, writerly training of like not being sentimental, like that's like the like the worst sin, you know, and, and being like cheesy or or, or too obvious or uh, or cliche. I mean those are all the the things you're kind of trained not to really avoid. And so like how do you avoid that but actually get something that is substantive um, uh, on the page uh, as far as a love story goes and I mean I think that the, I mean I, I mean, I, I, can't I don't know to what extent I mean I think I did struggle with that and I think the answer you know really just I mean this is the answer to like almost any problem in writing um, is that like the more it's, it's all about specificity on the character level right so um, if you can you know have two very particular people that react and respond to each other in a very particular way um that feels to a certain extent controlled by the people or characters you have created, you begin to mitigate some of those eternal problems, I think, you know, because they don't feel imposed by like I'm trying to like pull the strings on like your heart in a really cheap way or something. It's like kind of them doing the work. But man, it's tough to get to that point though, you know?
2: Well, I mean, I can tell you how he does Yeah. So he uses really great choices of having Tom look at Sarah, right? In uh, you know, observation is very one note, but he interprets her gestures, you know, like the way she smells, the way she moves, in a way that implies so concretely, you know, the attraction. So I really think it is about specificity, but filtered through this great point of view technique, you know? Um, I would say and this is just me personally and I've written about this topic um and actually got me into some tru- like not trouble but I was a couple of years ago I was on a writing about sex panel here where everybody was like really confident and I was on the panel also because I wrote this essay about how hard it is because I feel like at Iowa when I was there there wasn't one sex scene in workshop and I think it really is like that. <laughs> I know. I know. It sounds like a really boring place. There's a lot of well, stuff happening in Iowa, uh, just not at the MFA program uh, on uh, the page. Just between the students and the faculty, not Anyways, so
1: between the students. It's okay. I'm, I graduated like 20 years ago, so,
2: um, but. I do feel like I've had to like almost like kill that voice inside of me that's like, sentimentality, melodrama. Like I've seen students just berated by instructors who are, I'm just like, what's the point? If you don't step right up to that edge where you're about to fall into sentimentality and melodrama as a writer, you won't know what it is that you're trying to show. You can always later in revision step back. But if you don't... Go there, and a lot of literary writers just don't go there, you know. Um, I do, however. <laughs> My book is for sale over there. Yeah. There's a lot of sex in it. I know. Sometimes librarians are like, I hear your book is X rated. I'm like, it's literary fiction. There's no X rated. Maybe I was. should start writing erotica. All right. Anyway, so that about Nick. <laughs> Um, but it's true, the sentimentality thing. I think, but there's no sex without emotion, so maybe there has to be some sentimentality in sex scenes, right? <laughs> I think it's about point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you tried talk. To- I had to talk about this for like two hours. <laughs> Would there be sex without emotion? <laughs> Let's it.
1: But it's no conflict in the sex scene, right? Because both people
2: want at the same thing. Well, that's <laughs> simplified. <laughs> Depends on those people.
1: Yeah. You must have a very happy marriage. That would be a really
2: but, boring yeah. sex scene. <laughs> I'm here with my hair. Uh, I know. Okay, are you kidding? This is a very tame
1: discussion here. Oh boy. Uh, well, thanks. Like the turn we have taken here, I you know, I'm gonna stay out of it. Yeah. Wow, boy. Can we, can we go back to talking about death, please. Any, no. Anyone have any other questions about bones and uh, you know mustard gas or anything?
2: Thank you so much, to skylight. And also, please, there's a lot of Nick's book back there. Buy some copies. Authors live to sign your copies, you know? It's like basically the best thing ever.
1: It is, it is indeed. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, thanks to Skylight, thanks especially to Dylan, and uh, thanks to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks, of course, to Jill. Uh, uh, oh, it's good, that's so that you.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.